Welcome to the Salty Pastor with Dr. Douglas Peak, lead pastor of Foothills Christian Church for the last 23 years. Yep. This is the podcast dedicated to the people of Foothills who want to go deeper into what we are currently studying in the Bible and how what we study in the Bible helps us navigate what is going on in our world today. Mm-hmm. So you're going to study the Bible, study history, study philosophy, and it all fits together. So without further ado, let's welcome (laughs) Pastor Doug. Thank you, Jesse. Love your intros. Love your radio voice. You know, uh, some people ask me, well, why do you, uh, you know, do Bible study, which we really enjoy, uh, but you also, we love the history, we love the philosophy, and I go, well, that's because all those things I'm interested in. (laughs) Those are the things you like, so you're passionate about them, right? I'm passionate about them, so I bring them all together, and I think it's really appropriate because if you don't understand history, if you don't understand philosophical thought and philosophical movement, then you don't understand contemporary movements that we're facing. You know, everything that's happening today in our world right now that you see on the streets politically, uh, in the halls of uh, government across the globe, are actually principles that were seeded in philosophical thought from decades or centuries ago. And now we are reaping the consequence or the harvest of all of these concepts and principles that were sown or introduced in philosophical thought. So it's just like the old adage of, you know, you don't know where you're going until you know where you've been yeah. kind of a thing. So <laughs> yes. you have all yeah. of these things that happened way, way ago, and they seem yeah. irrelevant, but they're really the things that are causing all and it's of the good and bad things today. Yeah, and it's critical to understand the scriptures, right? Because a lot of people say, well, it's a dead book. And well, actually, it's not when you really start to understand history and you understand philosophy and how the Bible has already addressed and corrected this stuff over and over again. So it's really, really quite fascinating. So every time we study the Bible, study history, study philosophy, bring it all together, I think it's just really not only exciting, but it's extremely enlightening. It really helps us understand what's going on in the world today and how the scriptures teach us to navigate it. Agreed. Well, we are currently in a series um, what are we doing? What are, why are we here in this new series? What's, what's the point of the new series? Well, this new series is called The New Normal, and it's all about change and how we face change. And you can kind of face it in a couple different ways. And first way is one from your own perspective. You know, and this is a self-directed approach to change. And you're going to call on your psychological, your cultural tools to help you deal with change. Uh, another way to do it is to approach change from a biblical worldview. And that is going to require faith uh, that extends beyond you. So you have to kind of get out of your own head, get out of your own self, and try to see it from God's perspective and what God has the opportunity to do in your life personally in the midst of change. So really it's all about our orientation towards viewing change and not just change out in the world and culturally that affects us, but how we change in the process. Absolutely. Now this coming week, we unfortunately don't get to hear you preach, but we fortunately get to hear (laughs) Pastor Harv preach um, on Genesis chapter 40. Can you give us a brief rundown of what's going on in Joseph's life in chapter 40? Yeah, well, Pastor Harv is going to be talking a lot about 
what's going on in Joseph's life. And at this point in Joseph's story, what we are covering is his time in prison and what happens in prison. So the whole the whole notion of of how God is going to be working in his life while he's in prison. So before we move on from that, let's talk about ancient Egyptian prisons. I'm not a uh, uh, a studious person on what that's like. I mean, we understand kind of what today's prisons are like. Um, how do they compare contrast to the ancient Egyptians' prisons? Well, I, what's really fascinating here is this, is that prisons, particularly in the ancient world and every civilization across the world at that time, were the exception. There weren't prisons in particular. Uh, predominantly, when you look at uh, the Rosetta Stone, the Code of Hammurabi, you look at all of these ancient... Rosetta Stone not being the language Not the language software. one, no. It's actually an, a stone okay. with <laughs> writing on it. Uh, there's a lot of different uh, 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 ancient documents. We have a lot of stuff that's come uh, through ar- archaeological discovery that shows us what things were like. Uh, Egyptian, ancient Egyptian artifacts are just really fascinating, you know, and uh, there's a tremendous amount of history there. And, but basically, uh, they would uh, punish you immediately for a crime. If they felt you committed a crime, uh, they generally would kill you. You know, if it was treason, they'd kill you. If it was adultery, they'd kill you. If it was this, they'd kill you. If it was a lesser crime, sometimes what they might do is they might, like, maim you for whatever reason. Like, if you're a thief, they'd cut off your hand. If, you know, they'd cut out your tongue, cut off your ear, things like that. So, in a sense, that became a lifelong sentence for your crime. Right. And then, yeah, but uh, what was really common in the Egyptian Empire in particular was caning, whipping, you know, they would whip or cane you. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason why is because society, I guess, didn't want to be burdened with taking care of the needs of prisoners. They weren't interested in that. So now on a r- rare occasion in this s- instance, and we have some uh, archaeological uh, papyra, which was ancient kind of uh, paper, writing paper. Kind of. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was reeds that they would beat out dry and then they would uh, write with ink on it. And uh, W.C. Hayes, he was an archaeologist, and he talks about the late Middle Kingdom of Egyptian uh, dynasties. Uh, they actually have this papyrus in the Brooklyn Museum, and uh, uh, you can actually look at it online. You can't read it because, you know, unless you understand that language. But basically what he talks about is that uh, this ancient prison in particular— was unique and it was a place of confinement and they sent only two kinds of people there and mostly what they did is they sent people there for to hold them for a very short period of time until pharaoh decided what to do with them now here's what's really amazing to me is that they've this prison was almost 400 miles south of the delta and so it was a long journey to get there sometimes now that that throws a lot of wrinkles in this story because these guys are supposedly there for a short time. You know, it's like, well, in three days. Now, what could have happened is uh, they were there for a period of time before he interpreted their dreams. You just don't know. But I think what's really fascinating is whether it was a long distance or a short distance, they were sent there to be held for their punishment the second thing is that there was a uh, place where they would ha- hold people for long periods of times who would then w- be workers 
in the Egyptian, you know, public works processes, meaning directly for the Pharaoh. So it was like you were a, a general uh, slave of Pharaoh for their work projects. Right. But you wouldn't want to just keep common laborers there because that'd be kind of expensive to the Pharaoh. So it was usually people like Joseph who had a high level skill set uh, that you wanted to use for further on. So that kind of gives us a little different flavor about what the prison is. But what it really does, the main point is, is it shows us this is why he interacted with the chief cupbearer and the chief baker of Pharaoh. Because that's something we're going to discuss is like, why is this man in prison interacting with these officials? So having that back story basically helps us understand how he would have, because you don't normally think it'd be like current day, it'd be like, you know, me, if I was in prison interacting with, like, the Secretary of Defense or something, like, why why is he in prison yeah. hanging out around yeah, this area? Yeah, we, we don't really have any type of analogy for today in our world of what it was like back then, and so it's difficult to understand, but in essence... Yeah, it's for a very, very small group of people. You know, right. it'd be like a, a more like a federal prison, and it would be more like a, a very, uh, and you'd only go for a short period of time until your sentence was meted out. And right. usually, it was either you're restored or you're killed. Right. And and I think why both of these guys were there is probably there was an attempt on Pharaoh's life, and so immediately. They want to try to figure out the truth, so they put everybody who could have had anything to do with the plot in prison. They just locked them all up. They'll lock them all up until they can figure it out. So what happens in this prison to Joseph? Well, while he's there, uh, he is introduced to the chief cupbearer, which is a very important role. Basically, the cupbearer was the person that made sure the food and drink that was consumed by Pharaoh wasn't poisoned. So he would taste it. He would uh, oversee its production. So he, he was very involved with that. So you can see that's a pretty important position of position. trust for the Pharaoh. So he had to really trust the cape, his cupbearer. The cupbearer obviously oversaw the baker. And the baker uh, could have been, we don't know because Moses doesn't tell us, that he could have been involved in the plot. All we know is that they both dream dreams. And so they evidently dream these dreams on numerous occasions because they remember in vivid detail. And so what happens is they share these or they, they talk about the fact that they're having dreams. They don't share the details of the dreams until, and then Joseph says, well, why don't you tell me the dream? They say, well, we don't know, because he goes, well, the interpretations are up to God. And I think that's a really significant point to make, because what you see is a, is a big shift in Joseph over the course of this entire story, and that is the first time he told dreams, and what did he do? He blurted out the dreams to his brothers without an interpretation. Right. He, you know, I mean, it was kind of a vague interpretation, you know, so you're so because his father is. So you're saying you're going to rule over us. And so he just and so instead of saying this is a gift from God that I received, it was like, ooh, look at me and what I can do. Right. And so and now he shifts totally from that. And that is, is that, you know, I and I think there's a tremendous humility in what he says. And it's almost like, you know, I really don't know God's plan because things have gone <laughs> from bad to worse for me. I don't know what God's doing. But the interpretation is God's no matter what. You know, it's a revelation of God. It's not my thing, and it's not for me. So 
Um, so he interprets these dreams and they both have, uh, you know, there's vines and loaves and different things. And he says, okay, in three days, he says, the cupbearer, Pharaoh's going to raise you up. And he goes, wow, that's amazing. And so then the baker says, now that it's such a favorable thing, tell me what mine means. And then Joseph says, well, it means you're going to have your head lopped off, basically. And then at the end, he says to the cupbearer, he says, when you go back to Pharaoh, please remember me because I'm in here unjustly. And what I find fascinating is the cupbearer forgets about him for two years. So he totally forgets, you know, once he gets back and he's back to where he, was, he just he's wants just to forget everything. over it. He doesn't want to go back to that yeah. point in his life. So he's just completely over it. So he completely forgets about it. So, you know, it's really interesting that Joseph was able to say interpretations are up to God, you know, because he understood it was a prophetic dream. Well, why did he think it was a prophetic dream or why did he think it was a vision? Because, I mean, you know, there's plenty of people, you know, there's always the story of New York subways where people are talking about I had, a, you know, this vision that yeah. I'm mm-hmm. and it's, So it's like what drew him to think that these were real rather than just the ravings of people <laughs> people have dreams all the time yes. yeah and and a lot of people try to find meaning in their dreams all the time oh what does this mean what does that mean and right. so forth and and uh, unfortunately people give uh uh you know they credit a lot of their dreams that don't have meaning god and so how did joseph know well this is how we know in a couple of ways first and foremost is that he had history with god so he had a personal history of with God number two he'd gone through a testing or a sifting with God and so that tends to make you more careful in saying oh everything's this and everything's that and da 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 what, what it does is he, so he had a seriousness about it and so he, he he could understand the patterns and he could understand the importance of the revelation and then he made no claims as to what it meant until after he heard it and interpreted it. And here's what's really, I think, very important for people today to understand. And that's this. So like right now on YouTube, there's a lot of people from across America. They get on YouTube and they say, hey, I had this dream. Right. And they give these real, you know, uh, stories or they see these things or they do this kind of stuff. And what I think is really interesting about it is that they're very vague, Hmm. you know, and so you can attribute almost any meaning to it in some form or another. Notice, though, in these dreams, they are not vague at all. And the interpretation is not vague. It isn't. It could be this or it could be that. It was extremely specific. This will happen. And what's fascinating is you will see this happen again with Pharaoh, when we go into the ensuing chapters, it's very specific. And when you go back to his original dreams about his brothers, right. it's very specific. I had an old theology professor, uh, when I first started out in my education, he said this, and I thought it was really good. When God's will is specific, his leading is explicit. So that means there's no question that God is saying he doesn't leave it vague. For he you. doesn't leave it vague. When God wants you to, it's, there's no vagary, which is actually a word. 
about it. <laughs> You're not just making it up on the spot. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not. So I, I think that's really interesting is that he knew that it was a prophetic dream because of his history and his understanding and his experiences with God. And today, for followers of Christ, the primary way that we know a dream can be a prophetic dream or God's leading is explicit because we have a recorded history of God in the Old and New Testaments. And so we have a revelation through which to seek whether or not something is true. And that's really important to understand. So what should we be overall taking away from chapter 40? We're kind of working through these chapters week by week. What's our, what's our big takeaway for chapter 40? Well, you know, Pastor Harv is going to be preaching on this this Sunday. I'm always so excited because he always looks at things so differently than me and brings out all these excellent points that I just love to hear. And so I'm excited about uh, hearing him preach on it. But I think just in real general sense is... The biggest takeaway is that what we see in real life or Joseph's story is that Joseph began to understand something about this gift that he had been given by God. And it wasn't for his glory. You see, when he first did it and his dad gave him this coat and his dad gave him special privilege, he was like, oh, yeah. It's more like a bragging, like I am. Look at me. I'm cool. Yeah, Yeah. You know, man. And. And it reminds me of people back in the 70s, you know, I, I'm, I'm old enough to remember on TV, there was these televangelist guys, you know, and they're like, you know, I, they would create this illusion that they had special access to God. And, and I remember one guy in particular is, uh, he said, well, if you send me a check, I'll pray for you, you know, over your, your whatever particular prayer request is, you know, and, uh, and people would do that. And so, uh, and I just thought, you know, something doesn't ever ring true about that to me, you know, that God does, you know, God doesn't work like that. And so what we see is that this is a perfect example of how God doesn't work like that. And that the purpose of a gift that God gives you, and I believe every single person has a gift. If you're a follower of Christ and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, when you come into salvation, Uh, with Jesus Christ, a relationship with him, what ends up happening is the Holy Spirit gives you spiritual gifts, a unique gift. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians pretty extensively. What I find interesting about that, though, is that your spiritual gift is not for your own glory. And a lot of people forget that. It's not for your own glory. And I think that's what Joseph had finally learned when he said interpretations are up to God. This is God's deal. It's not my deal. Right. You know, and I'm going to be faithful if God gives me an interpretation regardless. I mean, if I'm going to be in prison, you know, and I'm not getting anything out of this. But because it's a gift of God, I'm going to be faithful in it. And I think that's what's really the overall takeaway is that the more you understand your gift, the higher your sense of purpose in life becomes. But the thing that hinders that process, the deeper meaning that you have, the deeper soul satisfaction you have in life and exercising your gift, is if you believe your gift is for your own glory, Hmm. if it's for your own enrichment. um, That short circuits the process of discovering real joy in manifesting the spiritual gift that God has given you. And so that's, that's kind of Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians where he talks about how you know, some people are saying, oh, I have a gift, but I don't need anybody else in the body. And he's like, yeah, it doesn't work that way. So 
God, it says there in, in 1 Corinthians that the Spirit of God has given each one a manifestation for the common good. And so I think that's really what happened with Joseph. That's a big takeaway for him is that he'd come to this point where he realized God gave me this gift, but it doesn't exist for my own glory right. or my own enrichment. He wanted to serve others with it or he wanted to use mm-hmm. it for the greater good rather yeah. than... I'm going to do what I'm going to do, even if God keeps me in prison. No, I'm not going to barter with God. I'm not going to make deals with God. I'm just going to live His in preference faith. isn't to be in prison, but Correct. he's not going to sit there and argue about right. where he's at because he, he felt like this is where he's supposed to be at that time. So. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, um, you know, a, a doctrinal position here, a theological position here, and I hear this really common in the American church. People talk about, hey, it's okay to argue with God, and it's okay to tell God how upset you are with him, and it's okay to do that. And I'm like, uh, y- well, yeah, but <laughs> it takes me back to a story when one of my kids was like five years old, and they were super upset that they didn't get what they wanted, and they were throwing a fit, and then they tried to argue with me. And okay that that it was good for them to get those emotions out but just getting those emotions out just arguing with me didn't achieve any growth towards maturity in their own lives right and every parent will tell you that your kid throws a fit how you respond to the fit what you do after the fit do you use it as a teachable moment are critical in their development and in the same way yeah, sure, it's okay to say, God, I'm really upset and I'm angry, but that doesn't do you any good in your growth unless you go, okay, got that out, God, what what do I need to learn? What? How are you pulling me towards something greater? How do you move past that? How? how yeah, how, What? what is it that I'm not getting? You know, because God, I don't want to be a 45-year-old man who throws a fit with you whenever I don't get what I want. <laughs> I mean, and, and that's unfortunately... What I think a lot of churches in America are teaching people today because their intent is good. It's like, well, we want you to know that God loves you and he understands you. Yes, that's true. Okay. But God's goal isn't to just understand you. God is to grow, is growing you into a mature spiritual warrior. And if you can't understand that he has a plan and design for you to mature in Christ, then you're going to short circuit that process every step of the way. That's why I keep saying fluff is not enough. Fluff is not enough. <laughs> fluff is not enough. So what other insights can we gain just from uh, chapter 40 or in general from what we've studied so far? What other insights would you like to share? Well, I think that uh, just some overall principles that we can take from chapter 40, and that is, is that God is sovereign. You know, God is sovereign. And, and we don't really ultimately know, and this is a very important philosophical point, and that is we don't know God's sovereign will completely because we are incapable of understanding it. How could we, in our finite material brain, in a cause and effect, you know, time-space reality, begin to comprehend the mind of God that exists outside of that dimension. It's not, it's not contained by time. It's not contained by space. It's not contained by any limiting reality that we understand. He's created it all. And this is why God says, you know, look, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. And Isaiah understood this when he was brought into the presence of God. You know, he was like, 
dude, I'm toast. I'm literally going to be fried and not exist anymore. He goes, woe is me. Woe is me because I'm a man of unclean lips. And what he's saying is I'm incapable of even being in the presence of God, let alone understanding anything that comes from God. Right. And so God's sovereignty, I think, is really important to understand in chapter 40 is that God is sovereign. And Joseph, I think, really started to understand the sovereignty of God. And that he could abandon himself completely to the sovereignty of God. I think the second thing, too, here is that uh, we begin to understand more deeply the difference between God's general will and his specific will. Like I was talking before, if his specific will is being revealed, uh, for instance, the archangel shows up to Mary and says, you are with this, child. This is happening. <laughs> and this is the name you will give him. You know, Mary is like, okay, blessed is your servant. You know, I'm a servant of the Lord. So, so that's pretty specific kind of a thing. So we see this tremendous specificity when God shows up in his sovereign design that he can step in at any moment, but it's very specific. Yet he's revealing his general will over and over and over in general. And here's the difficulty is that we get into trouble all the time when we take God's general will and then we try to make it a specific will. Hmm. And this really gets a lot of people in trouble, particularly in the study of the book of Revelation. You know, the book of Revelation is got a lot of detail in it. It's got a lot of analogies and a lot of detail in it. And so what a lot of people do is they go, okay, what I'm going to do is interpret all this to take God's general will for the principle of the book of Revelation and what it means. And I'm going to try to interpret those details to get times and places and people and names and all this kind of stuff. So I'm going to take God's general sovereign will and I want to try to define it so specifically so that I know exactly what's going on. And that's not good. Well, and it's interesting because I think as humans, we like to have specifics. We don't deal well with the uncertainty. I think that's a lot of what we're struggling with right now is we don't know how long all of the stuff that's going on right now is going to last. And that's what's driving a lot of people a little bananas. And so something like Revelations, people Mm -hmm. want to put hard, fast rules, dates, interpretations to them. And that's not how God wants it done yeah and you know it's really interesting because I, i've been around for a while i hate to say that but i have been and that is is that when I you was don't look the, a day over <laughs> never mind i'll get in trouble yeah <laughs> so uh you know back in the 80s when i was doing ministry this book came out and it said 88 reasons why jesus will return in 1988 so it was september 8th that was the year i was born <laughs> how funny so september 8th you know, the eighth month, you know, or August. Well, I can't remember. No, August, it was August is the eighth. It was August 8th. But I don't know why they picked September because it was September 8th, 1988. And, and so they had all these reasons. And so he put it out. And I want you to understand, I knew a, a person, you know, uh, not personally, but was like a, a relative of a friend of mine or something like that who sold their house. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and just went on a big vacation because Jesus is coming. And I, I heard of a story. Were... This is anecdotal. Another guy, he bought a convertible and spent the day driving around in a convertible. Because 
he wasn't going to have to pay it off in his in his thought process. Well, and I guess he thought when Jesus comes, he's going to fly. So he's gonna the, Maybe he just thought he's taking the convertible yeah. with him. And I, I want well, I want the convertible down oh, so I don't hit. He my doesn't head. have the oh, okay. He doesn't have the roof. Okay. Yeah. And see here, here's a little side note. This is you know, this is just shows you how odd and weird your pastor is. Is that this is what the Shakers believed? See, and so when you buy Shaker furniture, it's very it has very unique thin and streamlined lines it's very it's a very clean uh look furniture and its design and the reason why is because shakers taught that you're going to hear a horn and you're going to be bodily raised and if you were inside you would smash against the roof and so what they would do of course you know a couple hundred years ago is homes tended to be very very small so they would make chairs and tables small and very clean and then they would hang the chairs on the wall and they'd only bring them down when they were using them because they didn't want any impediment for them to get outside when they heard the horn Hmm. interesting very interesting that's just some of the weird things your (laughs) pastor knows but so the issue though of general versus specificity is this and is that i think ultimately God is revealing his general will to us. And, and in the process of the general will, he, he has some very important specifics. And the most important specific of God's general will is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The embodiment of Jesus Christ, completely God, completely human at the same time. They, they call that the incarnation. And that is God emptied himself, let go and embodied the form of a human being. And so that, that is why we're so Jesus-focused, because that's the most specifically wonderful revelation of God's will for all human history and all reality that you could ever imagine. Well, we're going to wrap up for today. Is there anything else you want to say before we finish? Well, I think these principles, uh, you see them being seeded in the book of Genesis from very early on. Mm -hmm. And then throughout the Old Testament, you see them bubbling up. And then in the New Testament is where you see the fruition of them. So it's really, that's why we study these things in the Old Testament, is in order to see what they are pointing towards and where these original biblical principles are first kind of being seeded in the mind and heart of the Jewish people. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us today on today's episode of The Salty Pastor. Uh, As always, please leave a five-star review or um, subscribe to the podcast or if you're watching online on YouTube um, to our YouTube channel so you don't miss another episode. And we will see you on Thursday. All right. Bye.